The following aviation podcast is presented as entertainment, not flight instruction. Though some participants are certified flight instructors, their comments, opinions, and discussions of flying techniques are theirs alone. None of the co-hosts or guests on this podcast are acting as your flight instructor. Please consult your own CFI for guidance on your specific flight training, aeronautical knowledge, and aircraft operation. This is the Stuck Mike Avcast, an aviation podcast by thepilotreport.com about learning to fly, living to fly, and loving to fly. Episode number 51, Civil Air Patrol, Zombies, Locator Beacons, and more coming up now on this edition of the Stuck Mike Avcast, sponsored by forpilotsonly.com. Now, here are your co-hosts, Victoria Newville, Sean Moody, Rick Felty, Carl Valeri, and Len Costa. Hello and welcome to this edition of the Stuck Mike Avcast. I'm your host, Len Costa. Joining me on the show today are my favorite group of aviation dropouts, starting first with Mr. Carl Valeri. Joining us from, uh, oh, you're in the Florida studio again today. Yes, I am. Actually, I got lucky. I, I'm not having to fly till, uh, till tomorrow, so I'm all psyched. I'm going to Oakland, California tomorrow. And hopefully I'll find something interesting to do that has to do with aviation. So you'll be spending the evening there then, I take it? Yes, the evening and all day on, I guess, uh, yeah, and all day the next day. So wow. that'll be a lot of fun. That's quite yeah. an night. Yeah, hopefully I'll find something aviation-related. Uh, I think there's a park, isn't there, that used to be an airport that's turned into a oh, park Oakland. or something? Uh, yeah, you know, I'm not too familiar with Oakland. Hmm. I spend most of the time in San Francisco, but uh, I'm sure somebody's well, right there. Right, I but swim I have to San Francisco. Well, <laughs> you could not swim. I mean, I've, <laughs> I'd I've seen, you're very no, fit. I could have yes, seen you doing yes, that. You could see me doing that. You got it. <laughs> Bobbing along across the bay there. Yeah, very nice. <laughs> so I got to go rent a bicycle, an electric bicycle, and I'll I'll go across the bridge. That that'll work. That'll work. Hey, you can bike across the bridge. It's a fun. It's a fun ride, actually. Uh, yeah. No, the Oakland Bridge, I think it is. Right? Can you go across yeah, that I one think too? You can go. I don't know. Rick would know better. Um, I've never it. done the bike on the Bay Bridge, but oh, Bay Bridge. That's uh, it, 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 it's a double decker. But I don't recall there being a bike path that way. But there might be the the cool. Golden Gate for sure on both sides. Yeah, because that's, that's where a, you jump from. That, <laughs> oh wait, <laughs> you, you haven't introduced me yet, so I'll be quiet. <laughs> right, right. Uh, well, that's good. Welcome, Carl. Welcome. Uh, our next aviation uh, dropout is Mr. Rick Felty from his studio in Massachusetts. How are you today, Rick? Oh, hello. Fine. I just got back. Swimming from Cape Cod to Boston. No, <laughs> you've been busy. <laughs> well, yeah, just, we are uh, a fit bunch, aren't we? We really, <laughs> we really are. It's it's great. Podcasting lets you live out any dream you might have. <laughs> uh, yeah, no, I'm great. Everything's good here. Been doing some flying and uh, you know having fun. Yeah, you've been. Uh, last I saw, you were out uh, um, out on the island, I think, with uh, yeah. with our listener Andrew Andrew again. Yeah, it was first tri- trip for either of us to Block Island. That is a fun. That is a fun little trip. Okay. It's a great place. We'll, we'll have to block, talk about that sometime. Uh, remember Block Island. Is that the one where the water butts? Um, I see. I'm thinking of, I have to think about this one and get back to you. I've done Block Island and it, then there was another one. It's not it's sort of not far from the end of Long Island. It's right. right. Just keep going yeah. out and bump into it kind of. Exactly. And I'm, I'm thinking of another one on the tip of Rhode Island that I flew into that uh, I remember flying right. in there and there was a citation parked uh, 
off on the ramp and I'm looking going, what's a citation doing on a 2,500 foot runway? And I guess they tried <laughs> to land there and ended up in the water. Wow. That wasn't Block Island, but that's what triggered the memory. Cause I think right. that was this, I had gone to Block Island and then gone to this other place off of the coast of Rhode Island there right. somewhere. I'll think about it and get okay. back to everybody on that. But, uh, yeah, great. Great to have you. And, um, our other two aviation dropouts, uh, Mr. Sean Moody is uh, not going to be joining us today. He is uh, he, he's buying a car and got a little held up with the negotiations. So he's still working with uh, the dealership and and taking his time over there to make sure he gets a good deal on his new car. And uh, Miss Victoria Zyko is under the weather this week. She's suffering from, I guess, a sore throat and is having trouble speaking. So we don't uh, want to irritate her throat any more than necessary by having her on here talking a bunch. So uh, it shall be the three of us and a very special guest that we have today. We're going to be uh, interviewing a, a good friend of ours, a friend of the podcast, um, talking about a couple of interesting topics today, some that have recently been in aviation news. And uh, before we do so, we uh, wanted to get into uh, some announcements. Let's do the pre-flight. Carl, you have any, what's, your, what's your announcements today? Actually, the only one that I want to remind people of is uh, Sun, or not Sun of Fun, Air Venture in Oshkosh coming up here pretty soon. And we're actually, uh, I am actually going to be there. Yay, I just got my schedule. So hey. I'll be showing up nice. on the 24th and the, probably staying through the 26th. And the other thing that's going on then, say you can't make it to Oshkosh and you're on the uh, East Coast, is the largest summertime summertime balloon festival is at the Quick Check Balloon Festival over in Solberg, New Jersey, Solberg Airport. And you just have to look up the Quick Check Balloon Festival, and you can find it there on their, their website. We'll put it on the show notes. Those are the only two things going on. The only two things. The only, right? The only. The only. The largest the, air show in right, the world. The here. largest. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Well, just just that right. one. That one thing yes. that we sometimes do in the summer at the uh, in, around the July time frame. Yeah. Uh, very cool. And I wanted to actually, since you revisited the balloon one, I wanted to actually revisit one from last show that uh, the the discussion that we're having online about your favorite hundred dollar hamburger spots, uh, you know, whether it's the food, the airport, the approach, whatever the situation is, we've got a conversation going on. If you visit stuckmikeavcast.com forward slash Ben Burger. Uh, you can you'll be redirected to the uh, conversation. Tell us about your favorite hundred dollar hamburger spot and join the conversation over there. We got uh, a couple of people interacting, telling us what their favorite spots are. We're going to be sharing some of those on a future show and uh, compiling those and and having a good chat about our favorites as well. I also had one other announcement to make. I recently sat down with Laura and Richard, the owners of AviationUniverse.us, a local pilot store here in the Chicagoland area, very close, in fact, to the Chicago O'Hare Airport. And uh, I sit down with them and get to know them, talk about their aviation background, how they got the store started, and uh, some of their favorite products on sale there. Now, that episode will be coming out next as episode 51A, so look forward to that in uh, the next couple of days. Now entering cruise flight. Like I said, we do have a very cool guest today, and before we get started with, uh, with the interview, we're going to break for a quick word from our sponsor. When iPad pilots think of efficient cockpit management, there's only one name to know, forpilotsonly.com. Whether you fly with an iPad or iPad mini, we have a full line of kneeboard and yoke mount options that will help you optimize your time in the air. 
at fourpilotsonly.com. Every product is engineered and manufactured in the USA, and our forever guarantee against damage is the strongest you'll find anywhere. If your iPro Aviator or iPro Navigator is damaged, even if it's your fault, we'll repair or replace it for free. Forever. If you're an iPad pilot, remember our name, fourpilotsonly.com. And we're back. So like I mentioned, we do have a very cool guest on the line today, a friend of the podcast, a uh, also a general aviation aficionado, a uh, gentleman who has worked his way up in the ranks through Civil Air Patrol and has also just launched a revolutionary aviation uh, business, which we're going to talk about here in a few minutes, our friend Rod Rackick. Thanks for joining us today. Well, thanks for having me on. I'm really excited to be here again. Yeah. So, uh, you know, I wanted to talk a little bit today about, um, you know, I understand that you've got a lot of your flight experience through Civil Air Patrol. So I wanted to kind of just get an idea. We've got a lot of people uh, who are interested. I know there's a lot of people out there interested in Civil Air Patrol and exactly what it is. So I figured, you know, we would talk a little bit about that and then uh, work our way later into the discussion about uh, the other things that we want to share, but tell us a little bit exactly, kind of give me a summary of what exactly Civil Air Patrol is. I actually got asked this question earlier today at the airport, so I'll give the same answer. Uh, the easiest way that I try to explain what Civil Air Patrol is to me is I think of it as being the Air Force equivalent of, of a volunteer fireman. It's the auxiliary of the Air Force, so We've got the active duty component of the United States Air Force. You've got the reserve. You've got the guard. And then we've got this amazing thing, which is a volunteer civilian auxiliary of the Air Force. And so as a CAP volunteer, again, I do not get paid to fly. I do not get paid to serve. It's my volunteer service. But I wear a uniform. I um, conduct missions for the CAP that are humanitarian in nature, uh, both in the air as part of an air crew, as well as on the ground. And then of course, you know, you can go on and on about all the great work that the organization does to service our community, state, and nation. All right, great. Now, like you said, uh, you know, community, state, and nation, what, what exactly are the regions in general? I mean, how are they, how are they sort of divided up? Uh, so CAP is essentially structured like the Air Force is. It's, um, it's uh, organized into uh, regions. Uh, there are eight regions around the, the United States. So, for instance, I'm part of the Great Lakes region because I'm based in Illinois. And then, of course, we've got and then we've got wings. Um, we in CAP, each state is a wing. So, I'm part of Illinois wing, for instance. There's a Michigan wing, a Rhode Island wing, you know, the Florida wing, et cetera. Uh, wings then get subdivided uh, for sort of administrative purposes and uh, to support uh, having a reasonable span of control into groups. And then groups are made up of squadrons. And the squadron really is the operational level of, uh, of the CAP. All the good stuff goes on as far as supporting the three missions in the CAP really at the, the squadron level. Everything above that is kind of administrative. But the tip of the spear uh, for the force is really the squadron and the squadrons are typically, uh, community based. So, uh, the, you know, for instance, an air force ROTC cadet program 
would be formed around a school or, you know, you've got other organizations that would be tied to uh, different, uh, you know, maybe a particular airport or something like that, or CAP squadrons, they get formed, you know, often at airports, but just as often not at airports. It's when, uh, you know, people in a community decide that this is a great way to volunteer their time and serve, uh, you know, their community that they form a unit and that, uh, and that's usually the squadron. So when you say, I'm going to go join civil air patrol, what you're really looking for is you're going to go join a squadron. Okay. Now, when you talk about, you know, serving the community, I can genuinely say that I'm not familiar with Civil Air Patrol. So this is kind of one of these learning interviews. I have probably have a bunch of good questions for you. But what type of services do they provide? You said it's an auxiliary branch, but what kind of services does the Civil Air Patrol provide? So when Congress made Civil Air Patrol the auxiliary of the Air Force, when the Air Force was created back uh, in the 1940s, uh, they gave CAP three missions. They gave CAP the mission of providing a cadet program. So that's for youth uh, starting at age 12 and going up to 18. You can join CAP as a cadet, do all kinds of really cool stuff. That's how I got started. I joined CAP when I was 12 and I learned to fly as a cadet when I turned 16. I uh, got involved in all kinds of cool experiences when I was uh, growing up and, you know, in high school, middle school and high school. Um, the second mission uh, that Congress gave Civil Air Patrol is aerospace education, both of its membership as well as the community. So CAP does a lot of outreach and support for educators uh, at every level, at K through 12, at university level, et cetera. Uh, they, they have a fly a teacher program. They uh, have free aerospace educational materials that uh, teachers can request. You can you can actually become an aerospace education member of Civil Air Patrol and sort of, you know, uh, really leverage a lot of great resources that way. And then the third mission is the mission of emergency services. This is this kind of humanitarian mission, non-combat missions that the Air Force uh, essentially delegates to its auxiliary because of uh, the, the kind of people we have available, the equipment that we've tuned to this particular mission uh, for, for in terms of effectiveness and and also just uh, uh, you know it's 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 a, a a different mission and a different animal to do things like disaster relief, uh, homeland security, uh, and search and rescue than than it is necessarily do homeland defense and, and uh, prosecute, uh, you know, combat missions. So uh, the, all those things um, all wrap up into this, this, this general umbrella of what's called emergency services. And, uh, it, and that's, to me, the exciting part, you know, because that's, that's where the flying is, that's where the stomping through the, you know, through the mud is, um, and, and that's the part that I probably spend most of my time involved with. Yeah. Um, excuse me. So you've been primarily flying and doing some of these humanitarian missions. Now, is it true? I've heard or is Civil Air Patrol in some way uh, participate in search and rescue as well? So Civil Air Patrol actually prosecutes 90 percent of the search and rescue missions that are managed uh, by the Air Force. So if it's a SAR mission over water, the Coast Guard typically manages it. And they have a civilian auxiliary as well. There's there's uh, the ability to to be a Coast Guard auxiliary officer, 
just like you can be a Civil Air Patrol auxiliary officer. Um, and they do all the overwater uh, search and rescue. And then Civil Air Patrol uh, supports the Air Force with all the overland um, search and rescue. So about 90% of the missions that come into the uh, Air Force Rescue Coordination Center, uh, which is at Tyndall Air Force Base, uh, get uh, delegated to CAP. Now, I mean, there are definitely some SAR missions that, you know, you need a uh, PAVEHAWK full of PJs to execute, and the Air Force is happy to provide that service uh, when necessary. But if a Cessna 182 uh, with some volunteers on board can uh, do the job, that's a, a really good way to, you know, save the taxpayers some money. Absolutely. Now, in some of these humanitarian missions, uh, tell us a, a couple of, um, we'll talk about what your favorite one is, but tell us a couple of the mission, you know, some of your bigger missions that you've been privileged to uh, serve on and, and help, uh, you know, the local communities in the nation. So the typical mission for CAP is search and rescue. So if you've got a, an aircraft that's overdue, you know, you, you, you didn't close your flight plan, they start calling around and and they don't find you by calling towers and FBOs, someone's going to go looking for you, right? And and that mission is really the bread and butter of our training and what we do day in, day out. Um, and again, it's, it's that model of kind of being a, a volunteer fireman. I mean, we're not sitting ramp alert at the airport waiting for the, the bell to be rung and you know we start our engines and off we go. Uh, but we... Um, we spin up pretty quickly when we're needed um, on kind of an on-demand basis to uh, perform the search and rescue mission. And uh, because again, we're a, we're a federal asset, so we can cross straight state lines. You know, often you know, if you have an aircraft that's missing, it's it's not going to be just in a particular county. You know, like a lot of states will have their their sheriff's department sort of be in charge of you know like a missing person search. But when it's a missing aircraft search, well. You know, obviously the area of uh, responsibility there can get pretty big. And uh, so we, we sort of tune our training for that mission. Um, and the great thing about that is if you're able to execute a search and rescue mission using air assets, uh, coordinating with ground rescue personnel. So now you've got the ability to deploy aircraft in the air uh, and boots on the ground that can affect a rescue. Plus, uh, all the people back at Mission Base to handle the logistics and the administration, the you know the communications um, to support you know the folks out in the field. You have this really broad capability, and there are a lot of lesser included missions that you can then execute if you're really good at the SAR mission. So, for instance, the ability to support uh, disaster response missions with very little footprint, not needing a lot of care and feeding from uh, other agencies because you already know how to uh, operate out of austere conditions and you've got your own communications, you've got your own logistics chain, um, you've got crews that already know how to work together and coordinate with you know folks on the ground, that becomes uh, possible. Our support for Homeland Security, our support for counter narcotics, um, all those other kind of missions, um, are really made possible because we've taken on and gotten really good at this uh, at at the broader search and rescue mission, and and we get credited for hundreds of life saves a year as an organization. Now, clearly, you've 
you've gotten a lot of experience out of Civil Air Patrol, not only as a pilot, um, but flying different aircraft. Uh, what have, you I mean, you started flying, like you said, you've been a member of this organization since you were 12 years old, started flying through them at age 16. What kind of aircraft have, uh, have you learned in and flown at Civil Air Patrol? I started two weeks after I got my driver's license uh, with uh, what's called flight encampment, which is a fantastic way to learn to fly because it's a total immersion um, kind of event where you know, you take uh, the opportunity to you know go and uh, you fly every morning. You've got ground school after you know after every afternoon. You you, uh, you grab some dinner and you study until you. You pass out and then you do it again and you really go from zero to hero very quickly um, in this kind of environment uh, versus, you know, the typical sort of, you know, uh, a flight lesson every two weeks kind of thing. Um, and that's how I started. So I went from zero to uh, uh, getting ready for solo uh, by attending a uh, Civil Air Patrol flight encampment uh, when I was 16. And then that was in a 172. So here I am in a you know, 16 years old, uh, still afraid of making left turns in the car, but you know, they're letting me fly <laughs> a Skyhawk. That's pretty cool. Uh, this, so that's how I got started. Um, uh, I continued after that on my own to uh, pursue the private pilot certificate, mm-hmm. uh, you know, work in odd jobs. Other people had, you know, money and cars. I had, you know, a, a logbook. <laughs> I don't know if that was the right trade to make, but uh, I'm, I'm pretty happy with it. Uh, and so, um, I got my private certificate actually when, uh, I was in college and I was working for a flight, you know, I, I, I worked for a number of flight schools, you know, I've been the office manager at a flight school. Um, and I was, uh, so I, I did my private training, um, sort of on the economy in a civilian flight school and then, um, was a private pilot, was amassing some time. And then life got in the way. I fell out of it for a few years. Didn't fly for I think it was four and a half years. Well, you know, I got married and I started my first business, and I, you know, I got another job and moved, you know, three or four times. And then, you know, and there wasn't a lot of flying done. Funny enough, 2001 is when I got back into flying. I got recurrent did a flight review. I think we called them BFRs back then, um, and uh, started flying again. And that, of course, then that fall we had 9-11. Well, you know, there you're either part of the solution or part of the problem, the way I thought of it. I'd always thought about going back into CAP, like when I was old and gray and, you know, kind of worn out, maybe after the kids were, you know, out of, you know, out of the house or something. I don't know, whatever. Uh, I, I had no idea that I would have gone back into CAP as quickly as I did because I just thought it was something I would do later, you know, like when I was retired, but nine 11 happened. And I felt like I had some experience both by being a former cadet as well as being a private pilot. That if I'm going to, um, you know, offer some time and some energy to volunteer to serve my community, CAP would be a great way to do that. And so that was why it was a really good fit for me. And there I was, I got back on the cockpit of a, of a one seventy two. I stepped up into the 182. I went from being a steam gauge pilot to a glass cockpit pilot. I even got to uh, fly uh, the Gypsum uh, GA8 air van, which is you know uh, a much bigger airframe with uh, eight seats, 
uh, looks like a Cessna 206 with a glandular disorder. <laughs> well, that's cool. So you've, you've gotten an opportunity to fly a lot. Now, I'm, I may misspeak when I ask you this question, but as, as a lot or the bulk of your flight time through Civil Air Patrol, I, that's sort of what I thought, but I, didn't ever, I don't ever have, remember clarifying that. A lot of it is. Um, I want to, I, I guess this is a great chance to have sort of a, a pulpit here to, to, to make the statement that uh, folks should join Civil Air Patrol, not for the free flight time. I think a lot of people have this idea that, you know, if they join CAP, there's, there's going to be a lot of free flight time. and It'll be great. Um, you can amass flight time. You can build your experience. You can, you can definitely, uh, you know, log flight time flying for CAP, but it's really an inefficient way to do it. Sure. Uh, there, there's so much, uh, you know, sort of other stuff that goes on that I always tell you, if you just want to log flight time, if you're a time builder, Go find another way to do it. You know, go get your CFI, go fly traffic, you know, drag rags, whatever you, you know, but don't, don't look to CAP as a, oh, look, there, there's free flight time there. It's not really free when you count all the hours um, and all the effort that goes into all the other things that, that support the organization and support the mission uh, that allow for then you to be called and, you know, asked to you know, go fly an airplane and perform a mission in the cockpit. Um, so I tell people this. Uh, join CAP because you want to be a volunteer. You want to serve your community. Uh, if the fact that you're a pilot uh, means that CAP is a better choice than other organizations, you know, volunteering with your local fire department, volunteering with your, your ESDA or your um, you know, local EMA or the Red Cross or something like that, that's great. Let's, you know, let's do it. I'm, I'm, I'm really proud of the service um, that I've, you know, you know, done over the years, but, uh, you know, I, I just want to dispel and, and kill hopefully for the last time that, you know, CAP is a great way to get, you know, free flight time. Sure. I understand that. I guess the reason I ask is cause I'm familiar, you know, you, I, you've got, um, you know, just coming up on a thousand hours, I believe, but you've, mm-hmm. you, uh, it's, it's not as if you got that time from flight instructing. What, I mean, you've, um, your instrument commercial pilot, is that correct? Yes, a uh, single, single engine commercial instrument. Um, I joined CAP with about 80 hours of PIC Okay. in 2001. Um, started flying, first of all, by getting checked out to fly as a CAP pilot. So you, know, you go the, you do this you know, really comprehensive uh, checkout, which is called the Form 5. You get to be a CAP pilot. Uh, with only 80 hours of, of pilot command time, the only thing I could really do is fly the airplane. Um, later I was, after I got more time and more experience, uh, I was able to become a mission transport pilot, which, um, allows me essentially to be the guy that can move an airplane from A to B. Mm-hmm. Um, right. Uh, but you know, that's pretty much it. And then this is all prior to even getting a, an instrument rating. So I'll just, you know, private pilot, all VFR stuff. Um, when you get to 175 hours of pilot command time, you can start training for the CAP mission pilot role. So for that huge amount of, you know, that number of years where, where I, I was a pilot, I had, I'd been winged. I, I could rent the airplane essentially when it wasn't being used. Uh, I could rent it to go, you know, build time, you know, keep proficient, you know, go fly the pattern, you know, uh, but, you know, that kind of stuff. Um, but I, but I couldn't fly it as part of a mission. I actually started by, becoming an air crew member, first being 
qualified as a mission scanner, the guy that sits in the back and, you know, looks out the window and finds the target or, you know, takes the pictures, uh, moved up to the mission observer role uh, pretty quickly. That's the right, the guy in the right seat is kind of the quarterback to the mission, but is not, you know, there's only one person who needs to be a rated pilot in these three. So even people who aren't pilots, you know, but have a passion for aviation, have a, have an interest in serving the community can, can um, get with CAP and, and be trained up to be air crew. Um, so I spent a lot of time in that right seat, uh, which was really helpful because, you know, I got to learn so much and really sort of pack a lot of experience into my bag by sitting in the right seat um, until I got to the point where I had the PIC to start training for the left seat. And then at 200 hours, a pilot uh, can then um, take what's called a Form 91 check ride uh, after you know amassing all the you know the, the, the training on how to be a search and rescue mission pilot, and you know that's and that's and that's a bunch of stuff that you get to learn how to do that's above and beyond you know just you know flying somewhere you know straight level A, a and B you know for a hundred dollar hamburger. Mm-hmm. Okay, um, you know you've talked about the flying side of it isn't, you know, is, is only one portion of the benefit. Another benefit is, is to be involved in volunteering and uh, serving and helping your local community. What other benefits since you've been a member for so long, can you, uh, you know, derive from your experience that you have found has been beneficial from, from your time serving in civil air patrol? Oh, that's easy, Len. Um, number one, I get to hang out with really cool people. Um, I like hanging out at airports anyways. I like hanging out with pilots, but, um, you know, serving in CAP, um, you know, and all the kind of different roles I've had, I've, I've essentially held all the cool, what I consider all the cool jobs at the CAP. Um, you know, but, uh, I've, uh, I've gotten to hang out with really cool people, both with other CAP volunteers, um, being in CAP sort of is, uh, a way to join the, the community around emergency services and military service uh, in, a, in an interesting way. So then you get to uh, interact with people, you know, active duty, guard, reserve, um, you know, federal, state, local law enforcement, um, you know, first responders, all some really cool people. So, you know, I've, I've hung out with, you know, and worked with, you know, special forces folks I've worked with, um, you know, active duty and, and, you know, and reserve and guard, you know, air crews and pilots. Uh, and, uh, so I've gotten to hang out with, you know, these really great people and, and, uh, it's almost, I feel almost selfish, right? Because, you know, I, I, I talk about how it's about service, you know, before self and all that, but I just get to hang out with these really cool people and learn from them. And that to me is absolutely, you know, I'm, you know, a huge benefit. Cool. Uh, you've been involved and and what I understand to be what I would consider just from hearing you talk and share the excitement and the stories, the opportunities you've you have flown, you've you've gotten to participate in some really cool uh, slash big national um, you know disasters, if you will, serving. What's what was your you know your favorite mission and why? So most recently, um, I got to fly as a mission pilot uh, in the response to Hurricane Sandy. And to me, that's probably the closest I'll ever get to, you know, being a combat pilot. Um, no one was shooting at us, you know, but um, I would say that the tempo and the intensity 
and the professionalism that was expected uh, of our crews was was right up there with anything you'd, you'd see uh, in a you know in a in a combat environment from you know what I'm I'm told obviously I've never flown combat um, but it was also an amazing experience. I logged over 40 hours in like eight days being deployed. We, we flew as a crew from Chicago to a mission base in uh, Concord uh, and then commuted to our search grids where we were doing uh, aerial reconnaissance on behalf of FEMA and the Army um, Corps of Engineers. We CAP did this mission where, you know, with very little resources. And, and again, the taxpayers got a heck of a deal, but we essentially created a photo mosaic of the entire uh, seaboard of Eastern seaboard of the United States affected by hurricane Sandy. So uh, that was from Cape May all the way up to Cape Cod, uh, essentially creating this kind of Google earth, like, uh, you know, instant snapshot of what the shoreline looked like and, and how, uh, folks were affected by that. And, you know, that to, to go fly a mission all day, you know, essentially take off right at dawn, typically, uh, go fly land and it's dark, um, hurry up to upload your photos into the FEMA database and then, you know, get to back to the hotel as quickly as you can where, so every step of the way, uh, you're, you're, you're in a race, you know, to the next, you know, milestone in your, in your mission. Um, was, 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 was intense and amazing and exhausting and thrilling, uh, you know, and then of course to, you know, as, as we're briefing the next morning, they would, they would go to the FEMA website and you'd see the photography that your crew had, um, had delivered, you know, up on the FEMA website, you know, being talked about on CNN or something, you know, that was pretty cool. And, uh, so I really enjoyed doing that a lot. Um, you know, I did hurricane Katrina in 2005, but I did that as a ground team leader. So I, I, funny enough, never sat in an airplane, the entire deployment down to Mississippi after Katrina. Um, and that was a whole different kind of experience being boots on the ground. But, uh, those were the two missions. So I've got these two sort of large deployments where, you know, I actually you know, left home and didn't come back for a week. And, you know, um, you know, I, I, I always thought it was kind of funny that uh, I got back to mission base after we were at a Ford operating uh, base for a week. And uh, we got back to the mission base before we um, stood down and, and returned to Illinois. Uh, when we got there for our debrief, there were care packages. We had actually been deployed long enough that people decided to mail us care packages. And we thought that was pretty awesome. So uh, those are the two big things that I've had a, the, uh, you know, the opportunity to participate in. And I've learned a huge amount from you know, both experiences. Well, those those are amazing. Some of those experiences you had, Rod. That's that is Carl. And I, I tell you, one of the things that I remember, uh, I was living between uh, the Bahamas and and uh, Florida in the '90s, and it was in the summer of '92, I think it was. Hurricane Andrew came through, and I tell you, I was so proud of what what the Civil Air Patrol did. It was in the newspapers. Uh, how they were delivering people blood supplies, medicines, doctors, food, all over the, the state of Florida, even landing on roadways to deliver. Um, one of the interesting things about that, though, and, and I'm not sure if they still do this, so maybe you can answer this, is that they were able to set up this communications network through ham radio. And 
we were actually able to find out whether our family and some of the islands were mm-hmm. okay. And mm-hmm. people that are were into ham radio at the time could get in, and they set up this amazing network within days. And and the police were relying, and and all the first responders are relying on this. Is that something that that if say somebody's interested in communications, they can still do and get involved with if they're a ham radio operator or something like that? Yeah. So if you've got an interest in communication, CAP is a great place because this is almost a a bit of a relic from the Cold War. So. The entire time that you know we were sort of all, uh, you know, the the military and uh, you know the CAP sort of had roots in sort of homeland security, home, homeland defense from you know World War II, and you know we were when CAP started out by you know hunting German U-boats off the eastern seaboard of the U.S. and then as the Cold War spun up, CAP created and continues to maintain uh, one of the um, most robust radio communication networks in the country. Um, we've got HF radios that can reach over the horizon. Uh, we've got you know VHF radios that operate not on ham radio frequencies, but they're actually assigned to us by the Air Force, so their own you know uh, frequencies, as well as you know, and especially after 9/11, um, radios that can talk to other um, agencies, other law enforcement agencies through, uh, you know, shared frequencies and, and, you know, and common communications plans and all that kind of stuff. So, uh, you know, you look inside of a CAP 182 uh, parked on the ramp, you'll find, you know, the left side looks like every other 182. uh, But on the right side, that part of the panel, you know, over on the on the right side, that's the mission observer's office. And usually that's just blank, right? Well, in a CAP aircraft, you're going to see additional radios. You're going to see direction finding equipment. You're going to see, um, you know, uh, you know, tools of the trade of, you know, search and rescue and, uh, that, that, that you wouldn't typically see. So one, the airplane's got this awesome red, white, and blue paint job. And two, it's got some gear in there that is, uh, you know, pretty capable. We've got a, a Doppler, uh, direction finding unit that can, not only give you a bearing to a signal, whether it's a 121.5, but actually can decode the data burst from a 406 beacon, um, you know, and so uh, really making, you know, our ability to, you know, hone in on a, on a, on a beacon. If you're a, a boat in distress or a, or a, a downed aircraft, uh, you know, we've got these really capable digital platforms now uh, in those aircraft. And then we've got the radios, that allow us to essentially uh, establish these radio, you know, these comm nets that, um, you know, when everything else is broken, we can still operate. So my, my best example of that was uh, Hurricane Katrina in 2005. So all the cell phone towers are broken. And um, and I'm sorry, if I get too inside baseball, stop me. <laughs> That's but, fascinating. Uh, but, uh, you know, so in 2005, I, I was deployed to Stennis, uh, which was a Ford operating base just off the Gulf Coast, and all the street land, all the street signs have been blown down. So we have to navigate by GPS because we don't know the area, and um, you can't read a street sign to figure out where where, where you're going. Um, uh, but the, all the cell towers are inoperative, right? They're they've either been flooded or they've been fought, they've they've been knocked over or they've just run out of you know there's no power. Um, so that, you know, they've, their generators have run out of fuel. And so your cell phone doesn't work. Well, of course, everyone thinks that, uh, you know, in this day and age, well, everyone just gets their sat phone out 
and uh, you don't need cell phones, right? You can get your Iridium phone out or whatever and, and make a call. Well, in a large-scale disaster, that actually doesn't work because that's what everyone assumes, right? So every agency, every aid organization, every NGO, they all you know, roll up to a disaster zone. Uh, and uh, again, when it's as big as something like Katrina, you know, the, the, the Katrina disaster zone was the size of Great Britain. Um, and so everyone who's operating in that zone has a, has a sat phone. Well, the net effect of that is every time one of the um, satellites would come up over the horizon, it would immediately start blowing white hot and be inundated with all these calls and stop working. So you couldn't even get a sat phone call through. The only way to get reliable communications during Hurricane Katrina in 2005 was like KU band, you know, you know, sat trucks, you know, that are that are talking to these really big satellites and you know in, in higher orbit, you know, uh, you know, the really expensive stuff, you know, so like AT&T would you know, brought in these sat trucks. That was the only way I was able to uh, make a phone call home every night after we got back to the FOB, um, you know, back to check in on my very, very pregnant wife at the time. Uh, but like, you know, all these sat phones that everyone brought, they didn't work. Your cell phone didn't work. So the other channel that we had was CAP aircraft using VHF to provide line of sight. We'd have, we have a mission we call Highbird, where we'll take a, a CAP aircraft and have them orbit at sort of, you know, uh, you know, eight to 10,000 feet and provide a radio relay, either through an automated repeater uh, that's carried inside the aircraft uh, or by the mission observer sitting on the, on the mic and, and relaying radio messages like, like it's World War II, you know, like, you know, <laughs> and then uh, and so all the other sort of high tech things failed and we had to fail over to the things, you know, this technology, the essentially 1950s technology of VHF radios. Um, and that was the way that was our voice of command. And that was that was the way we executed our mission. The ground teams that were running around in the AO uh, collecting data on essentially was the one of the largest missing persons cases in history. Right. Everyone's been displaced by the hurricane, uh, and you know these these ground teams are figuring out where people are, and then you know documenting that and putting that back. Well, you can't go back to the FOB and like fax that back to the to the to the folks at the state capitol or you know to the mission base, right? The fax machines don't work; the phones are gone. We actually went back to the old concept of liaison flying. We were we were shuttling you know bundles of written reports back to the state capital via 172s and 182s. So just like, you know, during World War II, you know, the, the general would put the, 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 the critical message in a satchel and hand it to the, uh, you know, to the steely-eyed pilot who would hop into like an L-19 bird dog or something like that, right? And, you know, fly, you know, back to, to headquarters. Uh, we were essentially doing that 182s, you know, at, at, a, at a forward operating base where, you know, the other aircraft were C-130s and, you know, Blackhawks and, and uh, you know, Kiowas and, you know, all, you know, the Army and the Marine Corps, you know, and uh, we were all part of that team. And uh, that was that was a pretty amazing experience. And like I said, it was probably the closest thing I've, you know, I'll ever get to to, you know, leading men on the ground in combat. So so um, because we were it, we were, you know, there was no fire, there was no police, there was no 
you know, sort of backup. And and the only way we could call for help if we got in trouble somewhere was the fact that we had a, a crew of, you know, CAP guys orbiting, you know, up at 10,000 feet willing to, you know, take our call. So communications and CAP, because of this capability of, of being able to operate, you know, in a, in a, in a, a austere environment and perform the search and rescue mission is a really robust thing. You know, we have repeaters, you know, we have, we have all kinds of technology. It's a lot of fun. That's fascinating how you can, you can build this little network in such a short amount of time. And it is, it's uh, how long do you think it takes to get that up and running? Well, the network is always running. So that's the thing. We're kind of the backup to the backup, you know? So when the machines take over or the zombies come, um, the Civil Air Patrol communications network is really what's designed to survive all that. And right. uh, we've got all kinds of agreements with, you know, federal agencies and all that kind of, you go to any FEMA, um, you know, region headquarters, they're, they'll, you know, they've got the ability to talk on our frequencies and we can man their, uh, often during disasters, you'll have CAP volunteers actually in FEMA facilities and, you know, DOD facilities and all that kind of stuff. And, and uh, so the network's always there. It gets exercised on a regular basis. Um, you know, we have standing VHF networks uh, where, you know, if I'm driving in my Jeep, I've got a CAP radio bolted into my, into my Jeep. And uh, because occasionally the, the, I can use my Jeep as a mission asset, um, you know, as a ground team leader. Um, and so if I'm driving along and, it, and the, the net comes on live, where every evening at a set time, People can jump on and test their radios and pass pass traffic. Now, this used to be the way that CAP would pass a lot of administrative traffic. Now, that's been kind of taken over by email. But we maintain those nets um, so that CAP can continue to operate even if everyone's BlackBerry goes dead. So how, you know, it, the, all this is real fascinating. It's interesting. But say you're new and you're not, you're interested in communications. How do you learn about this? Would Civil Air Patrol have courses on, on communication? Yeah, exactly. Yeah, we, we actually have uh, different levels of training. Uh, there's a very basic uh, level of training. Uh, you, know, you know, it's basic communication user training, as we call it, um, where we essentially um, have a basic radio communications license within CAP that gives you the ability to operate on the CAP frequencies. So you don't have to have a you know a ham license or anything like that. You come into CAP, the squadrons and the groups and the wings will hold that training, and it's it's part of the training that becomes available to you. Um, you know, it's you know typically like a like a Saturday you know class or something like that, uh, where you'll you'll learn radio communications, just like you'll you know you'll learn everything from you know you know ground search and rescue skills if you're going down that track. You'll learn um, air crew tasks. If you're if you're going down that track, um, CAP is, uh, has the opportunity to uh, to you know get you a lot of training. So you talked about the let's go back to where you were talking about the 406 and the like the EPIRBs. You know I'm an avid boater, and one of the things that uh, I found out about the Civil Air Patrol is they have this thing called the Sundowner Patrol, and I'm assuming they still do this on yep. the coastlines. They go out. And uh, every day I see them out there flying up and down the coast. And so does, uh, was it, the Coast Guard. I see the, the helicopters out there. I'll tell you what, that, that makes me feel a lot better because, you know, I've, I've had my engine quit and I've been out there in my, in my boat, that is. 
And, uh, you know, I get a little nervous and gosh, you know, to know somebody's up there and I can communicate with them is, is really important. The, uh, maybe you could explain a little bit about the EPIRBs and, uh, and what, you know, what that is and the personal locator beacons. Uh, right, right. Uh, but, but before we do that, I was, was going to say one, one more thing and the, uh, before you explain that, when I, I just went through uh, survival training, water survival training in January cool. and, we were asked uh, what we want to bring with us in this life raft. And, of course, I, you know, on top of my list was, you know, I had, you know, of course, the chocolate. I like chocolate. But they were saying that. <laughs> Who doesn't? <really? laughs> but that was my, actually my first choice. I figured, hey, I could survive at least, you know, half a day on that. But the most important thing was uh, it was in the top three is some way of communicating, you know, because we actually were able to bring a radio with us. And we're like, well, what the heck do we need a radio for? Well, that's, you really, if you're out at sea, you can have a whole bunch of food and, and you know, it's going to go away eventually. It's, it's being able to communicate, which will get you help quicker. And one of those ways is through these uh, little personal locator beacons and EPIRBs. So I guess that's what the question is. What, what are those things and, and who uses those things? Okay, we can do a whole podcast on this. I'll, I'll, I'll condense <laughs> make this. make it brief. <laughs> I'll make this the Reader's Digest version. So I think of them as three classes of devices. So an emergency locator transmitter, whether it's a you know the analog 121.5 megahertz um, variant or uh, a digital 406 megahertz uh, variant, you know, are usually attached to aircraft. So if you you know if you crash your plane somewhere, you end up on a mountainside. Uh, upside down and you're unconscious, your 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 you know your aircraft is going to go ahead, call home and and help um, get you located. Um, the the nautical equivalent of that is an EPIRB. It's and I'm going to get this wrong. You know, it's a you know electronic position indicating radio beacon, I believe, and uh, or emergency. Position oh, here I found it. Emergency beacon. position indicating radio beacon. E-per. Hey, I didn't do too badly. Okay, That's great. Good. Yeah, <laughs> uh, ten points. And <laughs> and uh, and so that's what uh, will be triggered and radio your position if you're uh, a boat in distress or a vessel in distress. Um, I love the fact that the casinos around Chicago that are these, you know, boats, quote unquote. Um, even though they never leave dock, all have to carry EPIRBs. Um, sorry, sidebar, uh, <laughs> the, the, uh, the third kind of, uh, of, of devices is a, is a personal, uh, emergency signaling device. Um, you know, these PLBs, personal locating beacons. And, you know, they first tested these with like hunters up in Alaska, right. You know, where you'd, you'd go, you'd be out there stalking, you know, something and, you know, if you got hurt and you're not able to get a cell phone call out, you could, you know, press the button on this electronic device and and uh, using the same technology, uh, you know, as the ELT or the EPIRB, uh, you could get found. You know, um, you know, we've got satellites that monitor for 406. The satellites no longer monitor 121.5, but you know, as you know, guys like Glenn and you know, uh, are out there monitoring 121.5. So if you call on 121.5 or got a beacon transmitting there, you'll still, uh, you'll still probably get heard. And so it's when, you know, the airliner is flying along and hears a, a beacon of some sort warbling away on 121.5 that gets 
reported down to usually the flight service station or, you know, whatever the, the proper organization is. Um, in, in most cases in the continental United States, uh, the flight service station then calls the Air Force. The Air Force then calls a CAP wing. That CAP wing spins up a response and, uh, and prosecutes the search. Whether, you know, we don't know whether it's an ELT, an EPIRB, or a PLB. We just know that it's an emergency beacon. It's like someone dialing 911. Right now, the important thing to understand here is that most of those calls end up being false alarms, right? So most of the ELT searches that I've ever been on have been false alarms, but that's okay. So if you go, you remember there was a time we used to have pay phones, uh, and I used to be a police dispatcher back in college. And if there was a 911 call from a pay phone, we would still roll a, a car to go check, right? Well, that's the same thing. If there's an emergency beacon uh, detected, uh, you still have to go check, right? Because you probably, you're pretty sure, wow, that emergency beacon uh, emanating from the lakefront of Chicago, it, you know, if, if it's really a plane that crashed, someone would have seen it. Or, you know, if it's a boat in, in distress, someone probably heard it. But you don't know until you know. And so we go fly those and we prosecute every single beacon uh, as an emergency until we know otherwise. And that's, and that's, that's the job of CAP often is, is, is uh you know tracking those beacons and those beacons um they have i think there's new ones that they actually you can register somehow and you can somehow uh put your name attached to one so like if the beacon goes off they know it's your airplane or something like or your boat or something like that um, yeah you register your 406 beacon with NOAA okay. so that the um, data burst that's that it's transmitting that can be decoded uh, can then give you um, you know an affiliation to a particular tail number or boat, which is great because then if your um, your EPIRB or let's say your your four oh six beacon is um, is detected, um, then we know then we can call you up and you know and and say. Hi, uh, this is uh, Sergeant Smith from the Rescue Coordination Center in Tyndall Air Force Base. We just detected your 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 406 beacon. Are you in distress? 95% of the time, this call happens at two in the morning, and you are in bed uh, and safe. Uh, <laughs> and your phone rings, and you're probably a little embarrassed at the hard landing you had that triggered your ELT, but. At least you're okay, and that's fine. I'm happy to find an aircraft safe and sound, sound uh, tied up on the ramp or in a T hanger. Um, I'd much rather find that than you know find somebody upside down, uh, you know, hurt, uh, you know, after an off airport landing. So, um, you know, you give me a chance to go chase a beacon, I'll do it. And that you know, there, there's so much information out there on, on the. I, I could sit here and talk about this for hours. It's just absolutely fascinating. The, this, uh, <laughs> like I said, you know, we the, could go on. Yes, we could. The, the uh, and and there's so much stuff on the internet about SARSAT. I think it's called and search yep. and rescue satellite systems and um, just just really really fascinating stuff. So uh, the biggest thing is just go to Civil Air Patrol website and check it out. But uh, the uh, go civilairpatrol.com. Go civil. That's the one. You know, one more thing though, I want to ask you about the Civil Air Patrol for people that because this this you can learn so much by going to Civil Air Patrol. Radios, communications, uh, airplanes. How about somebody 
who has a challenge, say a physical type of challenge. I, I know I've seen a one person that was helping out with Civil Air Patrol. Is there is there an ability for somebody who might have a challenge to get involved? Say a physical challenge um, to get involved yeah, in Civil there, Air Patrol? I mean, Civil Air Patrol has a very aggressive non-discrimination policy. Mm -hmm. um, I, it doesn't mean that everyone has the capability to participate in every mission and every role, but most people, even with challenges, can probably find a role that fits their capabilities, right? Even if that's, you know, an administrative uh, position at mission base, giving them um, the ability to, you know, to help us in the field, um, you know, fly and prosecute the mission. Um, there's, there's, there's such a broad number of jobs to do in CAP that it, it really gives a broad, um, you know, assortment of people a chance to serve. That's awesome. That's awesome. So definitely go out there and check it out to uh, go civil air patrol and we'll have that link there uh, online. Well, that, that was some, <laughs> some really cool stuff, uh, Rod, I tell you, did, and Len, did you have any other questions? I, I, I took a lot of the time here. Uh, no, not at all. In fact, like I said, um, you know, I wanted to really learn about the organization and, and I knew Rod personally, uh, was, was somebody who would be able to fill us in on some of the insights. Uh, like you guys said, you can go to, um, uh, like Carl and Rod said, you can visit GoCivilAirPatrol.com. There's a whole bunch of information on there. There's even, uh, you know, information on how to join, which we didn't talk about, but you can check that out for yourselves on the website. The After Landing Checklist. Now, because of all the really great information that Rod has shared with us today, this episode is actually split into two parts. Episode 51, which you just listened to about the Civil Air Patrol experience. Episode number 52 is where we actually get to go into the nitty-gritty about Rod's new business called Open Airplane. So join us for episode number 52, part 2 of this episode. Now, if you're interested in getting in touch with Rod to talk to him about Civil Air Patrol, you can reach him on Twitter at Rod Rackick, that's R-O-D. R-A-K-I-C. Of course, if you're looking for any of the contact information for us here at the Stuck Mike Avcast, you can visit stuckmikeavcast.com forward slash contact, and all of our information is there. Send us an email, telephone number, including all of the individual co-host contacts there. Also, a very special thank you to 4pilotsonly.com for sponsoring our show today. This is Len Costa, Rick Felty, Carl Valeri, and our special guest, Rod Rackick. Thank you for tuning in to episode number 51 of the Stuck Mike Abcast. We wish you clear skies and calm winds. Take care. You've been listening to the Stuck Mike Abcast. Members of the Stuck Mike Abcast may receive compensation for products or services mentioned during the podcast. Compensation may be received in the form of, but not limited to, referral commissions, free products, or service trials. Our opinions and views are never influenced by any compensation, and you should always perform your own due diligence before purchasing any products or services mentioned during the show. The Stuck Mike Abcast is an aviation podcast brought to you by thepilotreport.com, a Len Costa Production.